0: Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am your host, Kevin, and on today's episode, we crack open a beer in honor of John Chick Donahue, author of The Greatest Beer Run Ever, a memoir of friendship, loyalty, and war. Tonight, I raise a scotch ale in honor of Chick, who took it upon himself to bravely go to Vietnam at the height of the Vietnam War in 1967 in order to give his buddies a taste of home in the form of ice cold beer. This is an epic and unbelievable story and truly something that you could never make up. We're very glad to have Chick on the show. Chick joined the United States Marine Corps at the age of 17, then became a merchant mariner after his discharge. After the war, he became a sandhog or a tunnel builder and eventually became the legislative and political director of the Sandhog's Local 147, Labor's International Union of North America. He also graduated from the Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Now on to my conversation with Chick, who joined me back in May to discuss his book, The Greatest Beer Run Ever. the you can't make this up history podcast bringing you strange but true things from the past it's not the average history that you learned in school we're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools and stories that are just too crazy to believe the stranger than fiction Welcome to the Can't Make This Up History podcast. My guest today is Mr. Chick Donahue. Chick, how are you? I'm fine.
1: I'm fine, thank you.
0: How are you? Uh, very well. Hold up at uh, at home, as I'm sure you are as well. I am. I am down here in Florida. So uh, you are the author of the very interesting, very entertaining book, uh, Best Beer Run, uh, Greatest Beer Run Ever. And if you could, could you introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and about the neighborhood in Manhattan where you grew up? Fine. My name is uh, John
1: C.W. I've been chicky or chick all of my life. Uh be 79 in July. I grew up in the section of Manhattan, New York City, uh, the inward section up in the northern tip of uh, Manhattan. If you know geography, everybody knows the battery and the financial district down in the southern end. Well, I'm the opposite end, the northern end, same difference. And uh, I grew up there. That was my home nice neighborhood lots of parks lots of friendly people mostly irish people uh mostly irish and jewish people and then a regular mixture of everybody and anybody uh, i was there until uh went to school there 17 i joined the marines and went off to uh, for four years active duty in the marines came home two years in the reserve and uh In 1964, I got seaman's papers, I wanted to go to sea. I didn't see enough of the world with the brains. So I started sailing ships and it was three years later, while I was a seaman, the story about Vietnam and the beer run came about. And uh, while I sailed ships for six years, then come back and actually bought the tavern that the story started in, with my savings from sea. And uh, I did that for uh, four or five years. And then I became a sandhog. A sandhog is an urban miner. Some people, my, nick, my name is a nickname, chick or chicky. Sandhog sounds like a nickname. It's not. It's actually described in the dictionary as a soft ground miner. And uh, we dug all the tunnels in New York City. Sewer tunnels, water tunnels, rail tunnels, car tunnels, any kind of tunnel. And uh, we worked from 100 feet under the ground to 700, 800 foot under the ground. And anybody who knows New York knows it's all solid uh, bedrock. Uh, Granite, actually. I did that for a number of years. And in, in, in the meantime, the city went broke and put us all out of work. And uh, by default, I became the political director for the Sandhawks. And, uh, and I retained that position for 33 years, 35 years. And uh, during that time, I had a very interesting life in politics as a union political director. I wound up going to the Kennedy School at uh, Harvard the government got a master's in public administration came back and uh and while all this was going on i had a, a wife i have a wife three sisters, and i have uh, three kids john brian and Audra. and uh that's been my life i retired in 20 end of 2013 and i live now in uh, over 55 uh, age, uh, condo development in Pompano Beach, where I love to spend the time down here with my wife. Teresa.
0: And you also helped uh, with a History Channel show on Sandhogs, uh, I believe, didn't you? Yes, I did.
1: Yes, I did. In the beginning, part of my job as a political director was to get uh, as much publicity as possible about the problem of the third water tunnel in New York. And there was a young uh, uh, documentary uh, by, uh Edward uh, Rosenstein, and uh, he talked me into doing uh, a series for the History Channel on the Sandhogs, but also a, a two-hour documentary on, coincidentally, the greatest, tunnel ever built, which was the water tunnel. So yes, I did that, yeah. I also uh, got the history of the Sandhogs to be put, put in a book form. I hired a guy and uh, we wrote the history of the Sandhogs. I made uh, a number of other videotapes to lobby for jobs for Sandhogs for the water tunnel and other projects, 2nd Avenue Subway, East Side Access number of things so i had a full life had lots of fun made a lot of friends and god's been good
0: Well, oh, very good uh, one of the themes in your book uh the greatest beer run ever is that theme of friendship um so if you could start your book starts out in 1967 uh if you could tell us about you know what was going on with your friends? Who was at war? Who was at home? And and what was kind of the the uh, morale of of the Vietnam War in in your community?
1: Well, in, in my generation, we were the sons of the uh, World War II vets, and it was quite normal, that working class, blue collar, quite normal for. Uh, people of my generation and when they finish high school and the draft was always there. So they used to volunteer for the draft, get it done with, then come back and use the GI things, some of them together, get some college, but that was normal. Uh, it was a We didn't know that we were being patriotic uh, at the time. We thought being patriotic as what they call patriotic today was just normal. And uh, we started losing young people. We, I was young. Was, I was the oldest guy at the time. I was 26 and 68, 67, 68, 26 and 67. And uh, we lost a number, too many young men from uh, the neighborhood. Uh, Johnny Knuff, uh, Mike Morrow, uh, McDoldrick like McGoldrick, uh, Tommy Minogue, a whole bunch of uh, young kids from the, the neighborhood. And and that was sad enough, but then we saw the demonstrations going on all the time, uh, ostensibly against the war, uh, but then it turned into against the guys who were over there serving. That's what it was. So... One particular day I came through Central Park while I was on the beach, I saw this huge demonstration against the war, against the guys, and it was sad. These guys were my friends, not the ones necessarily fighting at the time. I didn't think of them first. I thought of the guys who were killed already, dead and buried, and how it devastated their families and everything. These young kids were their babies. I went to the neighborhood pub that same day. The 6 o'clock news come on, and they had all these on, on the news showing the demonstrators, and it was just so sad. And it, uh, People upset. You know, what the hell is my brother thinking over there right now if he saw this? What the hell would he think? Burning American flags, and all of that craziness. Uh, so somebody suggested, you know, somebody's got to go over there and tell them that's not us. Somebody's got to go over there and tell them that that we love them, support them, we're behind them. Rah rah rah! So obviously nobody in the place at the time had the ability to do that. I knew I did. I had my seamen's card in my pocket, and actually I'd been there two or three times already, delivering supplies. So uh, I suggested. I'll
0: do that. I can do that. So uh I did
1: and and your form
0: And your form of doing that, was that of is you wanted to go deliver beer to the guys in service.
1: Yeah. Well, you yeah, you realize that was in a pub. Somebody says somebody should go over there and tell them all of this and buy them a beer. You know, uh that was a, a way of saying good job. Have a beer. Uh so I did, but the next day when I came back to the bar, uh, there was—I'll uh, never forget it—Tommy Collins, one of the fellows I did find right away. Actually, his mother was there, Irish immigrant woman with a brogue, trying to stick a hundred dollars in in my pocket. Oh, you go tell my Tommy that I love him and I say in mass. I go to mass every morning at six o'clock for him and all of this. And I said to myself, if I ever took that that hundred dollars. I said, I would have to walk to a minefield now because I couldn't come back and tell her I couldn't find him if I come back. So uh, I knew I was in there. So they gave me a list. A number of people had come in, heard I was going. They gave me a list of uh, six guys. I actually went and saw uh, Ricky Dugan's mother. I saw Bobby Pappas' uh, father, Spiro. And uh, and again, Mrs. Collins. So I saw some of the parents and all of their friends and all. So, of course, they thought it was a joke. You couldn't get it done. But I was, uh, I was a street smart kid. Uh, so I thought I could get it done. I didn't think much of the danger. Uh, but now it was my mission. And good, I'm doing something for the war. Good, I'm doing something for my friends. Good, I'm doing something for my community. Good, I'm doing something for America. So that made me drive. That, that made me feel good. I was doing the right thing. If I failed, I failed. But I was going to try it. So a day or two later, I was down to the union hall. I threw in my sailing card, my Siemens card. And I qualified for the first job up there, which was the uh, SS Drake Victory. They needed an oiler. I was qualified to be the oiler. It's a Drake Victory. It was out in Leonardo, New Jersey. The only pier in Leonardo, New Jersey, is a pier that stretches into the bay for about a mile. And then one skinny pier all the way out and then splits into three. And it's an ammunition dump, they bring the ammo out there. There was no doubt in my mind that this Great Victory, which was an old World War II ship that they, most of them came out of, both for Vietnam. I knew uh, that it had to be going there. That's the only place they needed that kind of ammunition to send the ship anyway. So took the job, went out to Leonardo, New Jersey. Got on board the ship and saw that it was brand spanking refurbished. They had been built in, I think, in 44 or 45. I don't think it ever sailed during World War II. So they brought it back out they had all new equipment on it and new beds and beautiful uh uh mattresses and all that sort of stuff. And a whole brand brand spanking new crew. So uh which meant that the crew had to get together and form a committee, union committee, and I uh, became the chairman of the union committee. And uh, I realized that if I was going to pull this off, it would be to my advantage to have the union behind me. So uh, I became the chairman, and uh, and it worked out. So then we went off to. Uh, I got to tell this quickly. They had a uh, we had a meeting, an organization meeting, and we were going to split up the responsibility of the ship, where one was going to paint and where one was not going to paint, and where one was going to clean and where one they uh, set it up to three different ships departments, and and it got pretty uh, argumentative. No, oh, you're not going to do that. That's work for my men. and Da da da. So, but we settled it. We We divvied it up. A month later, not quite a month, maybe three weeks later, we're in the middle of the Pacific. Beautiful day. thousand miles from land. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, the alarm goes off. Somebody yells out, fire in hole number three. I said, fire? My God, the last thing you want to hear is fire on a ship. And even worse than that, an ammunition ship. Uh, wow. For a split second, I saw the whole thing blow up. I wasn't going to get to Vietnam. I'd be blown to smithereens in the middle of the Pacific and the, the local fish would have a salad. But uh, everybody ran to hole number three and put the fire out. The chef was out there. The engineers were out there. The deckhands were out there. The oilers and, and Engine crew were out there all working together. It was beautiful. So that was the end of disputes on the ship. And then we continued on to, and ammunition ships don't stop in. They go to where they're going. They don't, they're not really welcome that much in, sh- in ports. The next stop was Quinon, Vietnam. And the first guy I found within a couple of hours was Tommy
0: Collins. So you and, uh, convinced your your captain on the ship to to let you go ashore for um, a few days, um, and then you got to get through Vietnam, which is in the middle of a war. How how difficult was it for you to navigate the country?
1: There's only one way I could have navigated it, and that would have been with the military. Uh, it
0: was only a,
1: a short couple of years since I'd been in the Marine Corps, I knew the lingo, and uh the, the, as far as the captain is concerned i the captain didn't like talking to me because I could be a problem union I didn't like talking to him for the same reason could be a problem for the union so uh, I went to him and I said captain uh i, I gave him this crazy story that my uh, stepbrother was uh up in the Highlands here, only about 100 miles or so. And uh, somebody was gonna give me a lift up there and uh, blah, 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 blah. And uh, I needed to take uh, a few days off, three days. And uh, I had all my ships covered. That's all he would really be concerned about. And it was in port, it's it's easy. and And I had all of that done. I had worked extra ships giving guys breaks and uh, stood their ships, and they would stand their ships for me when I needed So I got that done that quick. And uh, so he went along with it. So I didn't have to come back until the fourth day. And I thought uh, I could get whatever I could get done in three days and then come back on the fourth day, and I would get on the ship, and maybe a couple of days later the ship would sail. Uh, The ship should have been there for at least a week unloaded. In those days, they didn't have containers or anything. And ammunition ships don't pull up to a pier. They were out in the bay. So they had to be unloaded from the ship into little boats. And then the little boats would take the ammunition ashore, and they'd repeat the process. And that was time-consuming. Well, obviously, I wasn't there for the next three or four days. They did it very quickly. Exactly how? I don't know. But when I got back, I guess it was five days later. Uh, the uh, ship wasn't there. So, they didn't wait for you. Oh God, no! They ain't waiting for you. You, you, know, you know, you heard the expression, "The ship sails." Ship sails.
0: So now you're you're stuck in Vietnam. Yeah. But but you kind of continue your mission of of bringing good cheer to to some of the men, but you're also trying to get out of the country. Um, you you talk about some people seem to think that you were part of the CIA. Yeah,
1: yeah where did yeah, that yeah.
0: come from? Well, when I uh, not in
1: Quinon, it didn't start in Quinon. I, uh, it did start in Clingon. Well, I went out with that uh, first night with Collins. We went to a pub with a bunch of his friends, all GIs, and I bought rounds and I, you know, I brought saved money and I had money to, to do all of this. And, uh, while I was there, he says, you know, uh, Dugan is only, uh, he's fairly close. He's up in the highlands, up in the Hanke. And I said, Dugan's with the first cab, yeah. And coincidentally, while he's telling me that, there's a guy in the middle of the bar, I'll never forget him, a big, big, heavy Texan, must have been about six foot four, six foot five, with a huge cowboy hat on. And uh, the first Calvary, Air cowboy had a distinctive patch with a horse's head and a stripe in the middle. And Anyway, and I i knew that from my time in the Marine Corps, I knew it was that that patch. So I see this guy with the patch, so I went up to him, and now I'm in the civilian clothes. I had dungarees on, uh Levi's, or whatever you want to call them, and, uh, and a plaid shirt. Uh, I had a couple of, a, a little bit of a beard, not much, more like three days ago. And I had not long hair, but much longer than anybody in the military. So the guy looks at me, and he says, what are you doing here? I said, you from Texas? How you know that? I said, that so I started a conversation with him, blah 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 blah, and I tell him, I said, do you know uh, Charlie Company, Second uh, Battalion, Fourth uh, Infantry, whatever? Oh, I know Charlie Company. Yeah, by me, you know, okay. Anyway, he offered to take me there the following morning at eight o'clock in the morning if I could if I met him on the, on a tarback. At eight o'clock the next morning, oh eight hundred hours, he would take me on that plane and take me up to Ankae. So I said, "Oh, that's great." So uh, we partied all night, sang a lot of Irish songs and all that kind of stuff. And the next morning, uh, went to uh, the you know Collins guys took me by jeep to the to the airport, and, and uh, he was the plane. He was Tex. He says, Hey, you made it. I didn't think you'd make it, Yankee. Come on, jump on board. So he just put me on there. There was no formality, no nothing. So uh, I got on a plane. I took off for uh, On for uh, I got off at On K. And uh, I went looking for this Charlie company, whatever the number was. Sometimes I get it confused. Uh, Baker Company, Charlie Company, Hotel Company. Anyway, and uh, I find Charlie Company, and but they had left early that morning, had gone up north. Who told me that? The only guy from Charlie Company still there, the supply sergeant, big tall African American guy, sort of middle age, kind of, which would have been old for the for the uh, for the war. I'd say he was in his late 30s. And uh, he said, who are you looking for? I said, I'm looking for Rick Dugan. He says, well, you missed them. They're all up north. I said, yeah, uh, do you know where they are up north? He says, no, I don't know where they are up north. They're just up north. I said, oh, my God. I started telling the story. He was my stepbrother, and he lost a mom, and that. that, I gave him some to So he's feeling sorry for me, he says. Listen, I'll make sure he gets it this afternoon. I said, you don't even know where he is. Just up north, but you're telling me he can get a a note this afternoon? He says, yeah. He says, how's that going to happen? I said, he said, we got a 1,300 mail run. run." I said, "Uh, well, listen, Sarge, is there any way I can get on that that mail run? And I'll never forget the look he he gave me dead panned face look he said, You got here, didn't you, boy? so uh I took that as affirmative, so uh i started he said now it's I'm looking at my watch it's afternoon or around noon, so I don't have much time, and the airfield's actually a mile or two or three away from the ba- this uh where it's on trollygun, so I start hustling back to the airport. Now there was nobody there. There was no streets. There was no nothing. No traffic passing by. And it went through a jungle. And uh, it was a dirt road. And it was dry, so if a vehicle went on it, it'd be driving dust up in the air. And there was, but there was nothing there. So I figured I'll wait there and I'll get a, you know, I'll hitch a ride down. But nothing came. So I started walking. And i um, maybe. 10 minutes walking down the road, and I see a vehicle coming, and it's going by way. There was no other vehicle going anyway for this. And uh, and I flagged the guy down, and the guy pulled over. And the guy on the driver's side, I mean, on the passenger side, says, yeah, where are you going? I said, uh, I'm going uh, uh, down to the airfield. I got to make that 1,300 mail run. He says, come on, jump in. I jumped in the back. The driver was there, obviously, and another guy in the back. So the guy sitting next to me says, who are you with? And I noticed these guys had military clothes on, but they had different. They had no rank, right. They had insignias, but they were civilian employees. Like mechanics. And actually, they were radio guys. They were fixing radios and all the helicopters. Uh, so. uh he says, "Who are you with?" I said, "I'm not with anybody." I said, "I'm." Uh, <clears throat> I told these guys the truth. They said, "I'm over here and I'm trying to find a, a guy." And I told him about Dugan. My, you know, I got the story with the stepbrother, whatever. And uh, the driver stops. <clears throat> he turns around. He looks at me. and He says, "Jesus, tricky, done of you. What the hell are you doing here?" I said, "Oh my God, it's Kevin McClune." Another guy in my list. Wow. So now I had two guys in the first day or two. Wow. So he drives me to the uh, to the, uh, the mail run, and uh, it was coincidental that I walked into the tent. There's a tent there where they. It would be like the operations tent, or the you put your name on a list. <sighs> You needed orders to travel on a plane in Vietnam in the military. Some of the civilians did it a little bit differently, but everybody needed paperwork. I had no paperwork. So I walked in the tent with these three guys, and I said, You got a, with, with authority, I said, uh, You got a 1300 mail run out of here soon? He says, Yes, sir. I said, Put my name on uh, on there, uh, John Donahue, civilian. He says, okay, and he, three, now what's we, standing in front of him is four civilians. We couldn't, all, all been spies or whatever, all Americans, so he put it down, and uh, then I went outside and waited around, and we were chatting, we had a beer, and uh, somebody yells out, okay, we're getting ready, uh, and the officers here, we got a lieutenant, okay, and the lieutenant on uh, he says, NCOs? Any NCOs? No, wait a second. Holy. We got a civilian here? I said, yeah, that'd be me. All right, you get aboard. So I got aboard, and then uh, the rest of the guys came aboard. And two kids sat alongside me, bench seating along the side of the plane. And uh, so incidentally, they wound up coming from Charlie Company of the same uh, battalion that I was looking and uh, they knew Dugan. And uh, I told them the truth. Uh, and one guy was terrified, the younger guy. He was terrified. Oh, shit, I'm going to be in trouble here. He, uh, They had been coming back from, uh, they were, had both been wounded. They were coming back from hospital and were going back up to their outfit. So one guy was thought it was fantastic, and but the younger guy was terrified. So I said, listen, I'm not going to get you guys in trouble. You guys aren't with me. I'm not with you, but I'll tell you the truth. I won't tell anybody else. I'm going to follow you. Because I knew they were going to take me to do this. So the one guy says, I don't care. The guy says, I don't want nothing to do with him. And he's talking to his partner like I'm not even in existence. I don't want nothing to do with this guy. So that's what we did. We got off at flew by the plane, hung around a little bit, and uh like a PC came, like a pickup truck, big pickup, military pickup truck. I'm in a vehicle with my two guys. If I follow them, I'm gonna find Dugan. Uh and we went through some ice paddies and through some fields and da da da, da, da 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 up into a mountain to a place called LZ Tombstone. So uh there was a bunch of tents there. And maybe a dozen or two helicopters, and uh, these two kids got off, and I held back, and they went into a tent, and I come back out, and the one guy came over to me, the guy who was helping me, and he says, uh, "There's an eighteen hundred uh, chopper going up to LZ Jane. That's where they are." LZ Jane. So I said, "Great." So I let them walk away, and it was maybe now. I don't know what five o'clock or whatever, and I walked up the little hill there into the tent, and I tried the same thing that I did in on K. I I said to the guy at the desk, I said, uh, "You got a, a eighteen hundred uh, LZ Jane shotgun?" And the guy says, "Yes, sir." I said, "Well, uh, you want to put my name down there?" He says, "What's your right, sir?" Because I'm still in these civilian clothes. I said, uh, I'm a civilian. So, uh, but I said it with authority. I'm talking to young GIs. I'm older than them. And and I know the lingo at the time. I was just out of the Marines' company. And uh, he says, I'm sorry, sir. He says, I can't put your name down here. You're going to have to speak to Major Meeker or something. So, before I could open my mouth again, I hear some voice behind me say, who has to speak to me? So I turn around. I introduce myself. My name is uh, Dunyu John Dunyu. Uh, I have to get up to LZ Jane. That's it. And I couldn't explain to this guy, particularly in front of the other guy. So uh, he says, uh, "Oh yeah? Why do you have to get up to LZ Jane?" So uh, I said, uh, "Major, if I told you the truth." You wouldn't believe me. <laughs> is that right? Did you eat lunch or eat dinner or anything? No. Come on. Come with me. Have some dinner. So I went with him. He took me to dinner in a tent. We ate. I got a great kick out of it. I was a PFC in the Marine Corps, and I'm eating with this major. and me. And uh, I told him in such a way that it was a ridiculous story that nobody would believe the story. But basically, the truth. And uh, he says, that's what I like about you guys. You guys would never tell the truth if if your life depended on it. And we went back to the tent. He told the guy, put his name down. So now I'm on a chopper after 6 o'clock that night on my way to uh, Dukin, up in LZ chain.
0: So you telling the truth sounds so implausible that the only conclusion they have is you must be a CIA agent with a ridiculous cover.
1: Some kind of federal civilian employee of the army, whatever, whatever. But I I, I purposely never told them that because, uh, you know, even then I do uh, impersonating uh, a... uh,
0: Federal Asian is a crime. Right. Well, yeah. The and let them draw their it. own conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. So you found some of these guys on your list, and, and you know, a couple you mentioned you just happened to run into. Uh, what's the reaction of these guys when, you know, Chick Donahue from their own hometown, who isn't supposed to be here, just shows up with some beer?
1: If you ask them, because they love telling this story. Uh, it wasn't so much how was their reaction it was their friends reaction or their brothers in arms reaction Uh, God kept saying Dugan tell me again he don't have to we're out in a listening post, an ambush post outside outside LZ James and he says he doesn't have to be here with us and he's here Dugan says yeah he says, I, you know, Dugan, all them crazy stories you told us about that neighborhood. I never believed one of them. You can tell me anything you want after this. So uh, Dugan and Collins perhaps still tell the story today. It was the guys who they were serving with that got as much a kick out of it as they did.
0: All right. So this um, uh, crazy mission of yours um you know, left you stu- stuck on the beach was the term you used. Your ship's gone. So what's the plan for getting out of Vietnam?
1: There was never a plan. There was only one thing, only <laughs> one way I could get out of here. Uh, the simple, there was never a plan. I uh, spent, a, I think it was two nights up in that LZ. Uh, and I got a chopper off there at the Tri. Uh, which is the furthest north you can go in Vietnam. And uh, I got on a marine uh, flight down to uh, Phu Cat, uh, which was about 30 miles or so north of Quinon, where my ship was. At least that's where I thought it was. It had been. That's where I left them. And I get off in uh, Phu Cat. By this time, it's dark, uh, or just getting dark. And uh, I went out the gate and uh, I uh, went down about a mile. I got a ride with a Korean on a, 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 there was a a Korean Marine Division base up there. And I speak a little Japanese, and the old guys speak Japanese still in Taiwan, I mean, Korea. So he dropped me off at the road to, uh, went on. So I started walking down the road. I'm down, oh, I'm out of now now. Now it's dark. And I realized nothing, I mean, nothing moved on that road. Not a thing moved on that road. And not only did I feel unsafe there, uh, but I thought it was going to be just as unsafe going back the way I came or continuing the way I thought I should be continuing. And with that, a, a, a little kid about five years old or six years old appears, and he's kicking like a ball, a soccer ball or something. And it came my way, so I picked it up, and I said something to him, "Hey, ego, ego, young or whatever." And uh, with that, I hear a shrieking, squeaking, scream. Woman comes running right towards a little boy, picks up her little boy, and runs back to a hooch there. She was terrified. I said to myself, she's a local. And if she's terrified, I think I should be terrified too. So I turned around and I started walking back up. And not a minute or two later, I see a vehicle coming from the the south, heading north. And uh, it was a, a Korean Marine truck with a Korean civilian driver, an old guy who spoke Japanese. And I said to him uh, in Japanese, uh, please show me the way to Fukat. He says, Nayogi. okay. I got in the truck and he took me back to Fukat. And when I got to the gate, I walked up to the gate and the guy says, who are you? And I showed him my uh, Siemens paper. Where are you coming from? I said, I was uh on the road to to uh Quinon. He says, Are you out of your mind? He says, Charlie has that road. That's their road all night. I would have walked right into Charlie's reception. So then the next I spent the night in uh barracks there in, in Phuket next morning. I got in a convoy, took me down to Quinon, went to uh where I thought my, the pier where I would get the, the launch to the, my ship, it wasn't there. So then I had to go to the Coast Guard, uh, American Coast Guard, which monitored the American ship in there, uh, and report to the guy. And he says, Oh, yeah, we got you on the list. I got you uh, listed as missing. So I said, Well, whatever. So I said, uh, What do I got to do? He says, well, I'm going to put you up in his barracks over here. He says, and uh, we're going to send a notification down to Saigon. They're going to send back uh, with uh, orders. You'll probably have to go down to Saigon, and they'll try to repatriate you to your ship, wherever the ship might be, if the captain will take you. So I went over to the barracks, and I looked at that place, and I said, Nice no, thing. So I went back to the Coast Guard. And I said to the Coast Guard, listen, I'm not going to stay over here. I'm going to go out to the airport and try to hitch a flight down to Saigon. And the guy laughed at me. He says, you're crazy. He says, you, you can't just hitch a ride on a plane. He says, you can't do that. You need orders. Nobody can go anywhere in this country without orders. And I'm looking at this guy, and he thinks I'm crazy. I just been on a couple of planes, a couple of helicopters, and uh, no orders. So I went out to the airport and I stopped the pilot and I told him my story. He thought it was outrageous. I told him the truth. He thought it was outrageous. I lied to him where I let him. I implied that my ship was in Saigon. I had to get to Saigon and get back to my ship. Otherwise, they're going to sail without me. So the guy snuck me on his plane and he flew me to Saigon. I got to Saigon. I went to the American embassy. And uh actually, the consul office, which is adjacent to the American embassy, and I went in there and I told him the story oh God da, 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 da So then the bureaucracy came in, and uh three or four days later, uh I get a passport, oh, great, I think I'm coming home, and because I had no passport, all I had was my c i d and then uh okay, then he says, all right,. Yeah. You know, you got to go and get a visa to get out of here. A visa to get out of here? I can't. No, no, you got to get a visa from the Vietnamese. So uh, I went to them, and that was board bureaucracy. Another couple of days, maybe a week. And on top of that, when they notified the embassy, the embassy, uh, the consul that my visa was issued and I had to go and pick it up, I had to bribe them. I had to give them $900 American. Now, this was such an everyday occurrence there that the consul officer told me, Okay, uh, have you got, uh, how much money have you got with you total? I said, Well, I I get $30 a day allowance from the shipping company while I'm here. Every day I have to go and pick up $30. So he says, uh, Well, Okay, we're going to uh, uh, give you uh, $900 as a loan. And uh, you're going to take that with, uh, well, so-and-so will accom- accompany you, somebody from the embassy. And uh, you're going to go over there and uh, because that's what it's going to cost you to get your uh, visa. So I went over with this guy. He had the envelope. And uh, when we go in there and the guy says, yeah, you got the envelope? Yeah. Okay. The guy gives me the envelope, and I hand it to the Vietnamese official in his office. He had the nerve to count the money like he didn't trust these Americans, particularly the guy from the, from the council. I thought that was outrageous. Of course, I shut my mouth. I'm getting out of here. So uh, I left. I think it was a few days later they had arranged for me to fly from Nhut Air Force Base uh, outside of Saigon, to Manila. My ship was in Manila, and they would take me back. Great.
0: know yeah, this, um, bah, bah, bah. I, re, re, reading your book, I didn't put together the timeline until you got to this point, and you started talking about celebrating Tet in Saigon. And I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no.
1: Yeah. Yeah. you remember me telling you I spoke Japanese? Yeah. Well, with the, the $30 a day, I had to pay for my hotel. You couldn't get a hotel room for, you know, American Western hotel for $30. But in Chelon, Chinese section of Saigon, there was a Korean hotel. And again, the old timers speak Japanese. So I went there. A guy told me about it. I went there and I paid $5 for a room. But it's in chelon, But I didn't. There was no. It was like being up in Harlem, and it was no problem, you know. So uh, I went to my room that night, New Year's Eve, and uh, laid down and expecting to get to the airport. I I told the guy he had to drive me to the airport at 5 o'clock. So I come in about 1 or 2, laid down, and uh, during the night it got louder and louder and louder. Well, they celebrate New Year's with firecrackers. And uh, that's okay. I'm used to the noise. That didn't bother me until the window broke. And then I realized they were in firecrackers, but well, not all of them. And uh, I went and I woke up the old man who ran the place and I convinced him. I gave him everything I had. And finally, he puts me in his car and we go down the streets of Cholone, heading towards the American Embassy. And uh, it what was it? The white mice. The Vietnamese nationalist police. They jumped out of the side of a, an alleyway there, stopped the car. Must have been a dozen of them, screaming in Vietnamese, and pointed all at the guy driving, poor old Korean. Uh, not me. They they didn't give a crap about me. And uh, I get out and explain to them what I was doing. Barnum spoke pretty good English. And who's this guy? He's my guy who owns a hotel. So they wanted to call for this. And I said, listen, I don't have time. I got to get to the uh, make a flight. So I left them there and walked down closer to the river and then over to Tudor Street by the majestic hotel right on the corner of the river and Tudor. They changed the name. It's no longer Tudor. And uh, there was nothing on the street, nothing. And I heard some firing, but it still it was firecrackers, you know, or maybe somebody shooting off, and, you know, their guns in the air or whatever. And uh, I stopped, there was a guard outside of the hotel, Americans. I said, What's going on? He says, uh, Boku VC, which was uh, I heard all, all the time Boku VC. I never saw any VC, but everybody said Boku VC. I said, What are you talking about? He says, uh, where you been? I said, I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to go to the embassy. Embassy. He says, they got the embassy. I said, what? He said, what are you talking? I couldn't believe it. It, it wouldn't enter my mind. Couldn't get into that thick, thick head of mine. So uh, I went into the hotel and the manager says, are you a guest here? I said, no, you have to leave. You cannot stay here. Everybody was suspect. So the Americans weren't there to protect me. So I started working my way up to Tudor Street, to the Brinks, up past Notre Dame, to the Main Street, made a right, started heading towards the embassy. Well, I got to the embassy. Now I know there's something really wrong going on here, because I saw some Americans a block and a half away from the embassy. I saw Americans behind the trees firing their weapons into the embassy. It made no sense. No sense whatsoever. But I kept going. I had no place else to go. I didn't I, I didn't know what to think of it. I was totally confused, but I kept going. And by the time I got to the embassy, I was with them GIs hiding behind them trees. And they were firing back and forth uh, to those guys. Uh, by that time, Charlie had been in the embassy for an hour, an hour and a half. <clears throat> two hours maybe, I don't know. And and we didn't know outside that they had on that, that at that time they were only on the ground. They never got into any buildings except one where there was an American and and they and that guy killed. But they did not occupy any buildings. So they weren't up on the heights shooting down on They were behind and on the grounds. And yeah, there was 19 of them totally. They killed every one of them. Two of them. Uh, were actually, employees of the American Embassy. Uh, they were chauffeurs. I saw maybe a five or six GIs killed there. Uh, and again, I was in the Marine, so uh, the hero of the Embassy, I always thought, was it was a, a new Embassy with a big, beautiful front door, tall thing, and there was uh, two Marines who were on guard at that Embassy door. And there were uh, Orders of the day were if uh, anything unusual like fire, anybody firing anyway, any gunfire, they're, uh, they're there to close the embassy door and lock it and wait to be relieved. And that's exactly what they did. They closed the embassy door, they locked it, and stood. One guy was actually wounded by right that. <laughs> and uh, but the other guy relieved him, and he stood at attention inside the embassy door for hours until uh, I think it was uh, whatever Airborne Division, it might have been a hunter, first came in from the helicopters on laying, landing on the roof. So now I'm stuck. There was my flight. I said, I finally found the console guy hours later. I said, what about my flight? He says, are you out of your mind? They have half a tons of There's no flight. I could. I, I. wouldn't accept reality, and that became a whole new chapter of my life. Now I'm definitely stuck there. Not only did I miss the flight, I missed the ship from Manila, and uh, I had to start all over again.
0: And you find yourself stuck in Vietnam in the absolute worst possible moment.
1: To tell you the truth, I didn't know that that was the actually worst po- uh, possible moment. It was for there, for the embassy, for me, for Saigon, but I didn't know the extent of the action up and down. The whole country, everywhere was attacked. And I didn't find that out until as the days went on when I found the Carabella Hotel and the bar up on the roof where I went. And uh, and there was a lot of reporters there. Anyway, so I, as I learned later, I was I was lucky. A lot of people weren't them guys up in way. They weren't lucky at
0: all. Well, Chick, uh, this is uh, one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard. And, and of course, you know, there, there's more to it. Um, if someone wanted to yeah. learn more about your mm-hmm. tale and pick up a copy of The Greatest Beer Run Ever, uh, where can they go to learn more? Well, I
1: guess that, I guess they can get it online. Uh, Collins is uh, the publisher.
0: All right, yeah. well, uh, but,
1: Chick. Uh, the, mo- the movie is going to be as exciting, if not more.
0: Oh, um, what can you tell us about a pending movie?
1: Peter Farrelly, who won the Academy Award last year for uh, Best Picture, uh, the Green Book, uh, he, took, he has the right and he's doing a movie. And the writer for Green Book, uh, Brian Hayes Curry, who also won the Academy Award, uh, he's the lead writer. And there's another writer in, a uh, much-decorated writer by the name of Peter Jones. He's also working on the project. I think Paramount's involved also. Sky is the people who uh, I dealt with, or my agent dealt with and peter and peter Farrell came down here last year with his team and uh producers and writers directors whatever and uh we went over all of this stuff
0: should be fun excellent definitely looking forward to see this on the screen
1: thank you thank you Kevin.
0: all right well uh chick uh, you were a delight to talk to you are a natural born storyteller Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today.
1: You're quite welcome, Kevin.
0: Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Can't Make This Up History podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to Chick's story. Uh, If you want to pick up a copy of the book, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, uh, check out the link in the description of this episode on your podcast app. Uh, It takes you to IndieBound.org where you can pick up a copy at your local bookstore. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast, uh, consider giving it a review on whatever you listen to. Um, Got a new review, five-star review, on Apple Podcasts from Grumpy Gal One, who says she enjoys the show. Uh, So thank you very much, Grumpy Gal. Uh, And if you have some good comments, I'd love to see them on there as well. And if you want to connect with me on social media, uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all at CMTUHistory. Uh, That's it for this episode. I've got a quick turnaround for the next one. Uh, Join me back here next week where we'll, we'll be diving into some true crime.